go. How's that? Better. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, uh, thanks to Dan for that reminder about uh, sometimes you lead and sometimes you let other people lead. That's why Christy and the people that were doing the, the leading of the singing did that and not me. See, the, the staff is, we're practicing that. Um, I do believe we have a video to get started with, uh, if you want to roll that, guys. So this is a painting that I was given when my grandmother passed away. It always hung right above her bed. Her dad, I'm guessing, would have given it to her after she spent the summer at a dude ranch when she was 19 in like the 40s. Not sure if it's a print or a painting, but when I got it, there was a mosquito underneath the glass. So I took it out to the front yard and I opened it up to get the mosquito out so I could take it with me to college. And then it kind of scared me a little. I closed it back up immediately because it looked like it might be real. Okay. And have you had it appraised before? Do you know if she had it appraised? It was appraised um, in like a general house appraisal twice. Um, in 1998, it was appraised as a print at $200. And in 2004, it was appraised at $250. Okay. Do you know anything about the artist? Have you done any looking into that? Or I know he was born in France. And then he moved to northern Pennsylvania. So he could have been in the area at the time when he was painting it, when it was given to my grandmother. And then he moved out to Ohio. But he had um, associations with, like, the Sioux tribe. So they actually adopted him in, and they gave him a cipher, long boots. And that's what that little circle underneath his Mm -hmm. signature is. So that, that's the artist. It's Henry Francois Farney. He was mm-hmm. born in France. He came to Pennsylvania when he was about six years old. And he, when he was living in Pennsylvania, he began a relationship with the Seneca Indians. And that's really where his fascination with the different tribes began. This piece is really interesting because it's a dense group of figures, which is very desirable in his work. He did um, eventually spend a lot of time with the Sioux Indians, and they did adopt him and gave him the name Long Boots. This is really his most prolific time. 1890 is about when we start to see some of his very best paintings. He represented the Native Americans in a very kind of peaceful, tranquil way, and you can see that in this painting. He didn't ever really bring conflict into his work, as some of the other artists from that time did. Charles Russell and Remington kind of would show the conflict with the Indians, where he really wanted to just show the Native Americans in their natural environment without too many other things happening besides the landscape around them. So if we were going to put this in an auction today, I would suggest an estimate of 200000 to 300000 so I can't hang it up oh my god that's so much I don't even know what to say. These kind of things, they're kind of just the best, right? You, you have a situation where, where some junky-looking old thing 
can turn out to be just this amazingly priceless heirloom, like something that you inherited from your, your weird great aunt, and it turns out that's going to pay for your college tuition, son. Or, or this thing that sat on grandpa's desk, right, as a paperweight. You could buy a house if you sold that. Uh, right? this, this girl was thinking she was just going to take this old painting from her grandma and hang it up in her dorm room because it looked kind of cool. And turns out it's worth like a quarter million dollars and probably should be in a museum. That's pretty cool when you have something that you don't actually know how much it's worth and it turns out to be a small fortune. But it can also be a little bit dangerous if you have something like that. You, you could be careless with it if you think, ah, it's just some, some thing you might pick up at a garage sale. You'd be careless. You might damage it. Um, maybe you'd even sell it mistakenly. Maybe what if she had sold that for 250 bucks to that likely crooked antique appraiser that told her that was all it's worth, right? That guy would have made a fortune. Um, That's the danger when you don't know what you have and what it's actually worth. The Apostle Paul is thinking along the same lines in our text for today. He's saying to the Ephesian Christians and to us, do you have any idea of the value of what is yours in Christ? I don't think you do. And maybe we need to pray in that regard. So if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, And as our custom is, we'll stand for the reading of our sermon passage today. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation In the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. You may have a seat. So the passage begins with the Apostle Paul launching into a prayer for the church at Ephesus. This is typical Paul. Whenever I think of you, he says, I give thanks. Perhaps a bit of a hyperbole. That's how he starts the letters. Uh, He starts the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. He says much the same, and then he spends 16 chapters just kind of laying into them. For, for how sinful and dysfunctional they are. But I think his point is, he's not saying that he only gives thanks, but he's saying that he always gives thanks. No matter what situation he's facing when he thinks of these people, he always finds something that he can be thankful for. Even if he also prays that God will make things clear to them or change them or convict them, he finds things that he can be thankful for whenever he thinks of them. Specifically here, he mentions that he gives thanks for their faith. 
He gives thanks that these people have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's be clear, in the first century Roman world, that was a pretty big deal. Like most cities in the ancient world, Ephesus was a pluralistic society. People worshipped a wide variety of pagan gods, as most people did in that world. However, Ephesus was also home to a uh, major religious temple, to the temple of Artemis. And it was considered to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. And it dominated not just religious life, but also civic life. And it seems that in Ephesus, Artemis was worshipped as, as a fertility goddess. And, and likely that would have even involved uh, ritual prostitution uh, at the temples when people went to worship. So there was that. And there also probably existed a strong emphasis of what we might call folk magic as well. For Paul to see people turning away from all of this, the fertility cults at the temple, the folk magic and the witchcraft and the paganism, to get away from all of that and to put their trust rather in the Lord Jesus Christ, that was cause for great rejoicing. These people weren't just adding some new beliefs to a mental or religious checklist. By putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than all this other stuff, they were turning their backs on basically the entire basis and ground of the culture that they knew. This was huge. And yet look at how Paul prays for them. Christians in Ephesus would have had all of the same struggles that anybody else has and that many of us still have today. They dealt with sickness, financial difficulties, family problems, aging parents, rebellious children, mistreatment on account of their faith. The list goes on and on. And yet, how does and what does Paul pray for them? He doesn't just launch into, Lord, would you heal so-and-so that is sick? Or, Lord, would you comfort so-and-so in the loss of a loved one? Or, Lord, provide for so-and-so in their loss of employment? Those are all valid concerns. And elsewhere, Paul does encourage us to pray for all sorts of things, to lift our thanksgiving and requests before the Lord. But here... He prays not for a change in circumstances, but for greater understanding of who God is and all that is ours by his gift. Isn't that just a bit, well, maybe missing the point, Paul? Like, what's the point of praying for a spirit of wisdom or that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened when somebody's just lost a child or been disowned by their family on account of their faith in Christ? Isn't just praying for wisdom, isn't that just kind of cold-hearted? Here's the thing. Changes in your circumstances without corresponding growth in your faith doesn't do us much good. At best, that would prompt some short-term thanksgiving and rejoicing, sure, but that usually dissipates once the next challenge comes along. And at worst, a change in circumstances without corresponding growth in our faith just teaches us to view God kind of like a vending machine who's just there. We go to him, we get what we want, we carry on. We go to him again whenever we have another need. Just kind of there to cater to us. As long as the change in our circumstances remains our highest priority and our highest prayer request we're still operating under a basically worldly model of reality. And that's why Paul prays as he does. Not because he doesn't care about their legitimate needs, but because he knows that they have deeper needs that they don't even realize they have. 
So he prays that they'll be filled with spiritual wisdom and that the eyes of their hearts will be opened. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time, can, we can unfortunately get to a place where we seem to think that the, the truths of the gospel are kind of just self-evident because we've become so familiar with them. They are anything but. The truths of the gospel flew in the face of everything that was going on in Paul's world in first century Roman Empire, and they fly in the face of most of the things that are still important or considered to be so in our culture today. Here's what most people, and even some who call themselves Christians, try to do. Construct a version of reality just based on their own experiences and their own preferences, informed by whatever they happen to pick up along the way, taking a bit of this and a bit of that, try to figure out what works, judge it by whatever they happen to prefer or whatever people are saying at the moment, and and build a life on that. And against all that, the gospel says, no, you don't get to put together a version of reality or a foundation of life like that. At least not a credible one. Rather, the truth about ultimate reality and the meaning of life and who God is comes by the revelation of God. God revealed himself through his holy prophets. God revealed himself climactically through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He revealed himself as the apostles bore witness to that. He revealed himself as they wrote down that witness and as we have it in Scripture. And he continues to reveal himself whenever we open it up and whenever the Holy Spirit illumines the eyes of our heart to understand what's going on here. This isn't just, these aren't just nice stories to teach the children some good morals. These aren't a few wise suggestions for life you can just take or leave. This isn't a source book where you just take, oh, I like this, and over here I like this, and take a few bits and pieces, and leave the rest. This is God's testimony and revelation about what's ultimately real and will actually serve you as a foundation for life. But we need eyes to see it. And so that's what Paul prays for. He knew that if the Ephesians didn't have eyes to see and understand God's revelation in Christ, they would be toast in the pagan and pluralistic world that they were living in. And it's still true of us. Paul specifically mentions three areas where he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open to understanding the truth about God's work in the world and in our lives. The hope of his call, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, Greek scholars being what they are, there is all kinds of disagreement about exactly how to take... Greek scholars are hilarious, I think. You open a commentary, and one of them will say something like, well, there are some scholars that take it this way, but clearly they're wrong, and they're Bush League scholars. And then you open up, and they don't say it quite like that, but there's a little snarkiness implied, right? You open up some other commentaries, and they take the opposite view and say, well, some scholars say this, but, but they're wrong, and I'm right. At the end of the day, you have to find a way through all of this, and I hope I've done a halfway's decent job today. I understand all of these three things, his call, his inheritance, and his power, as being primarily from God, but for us, his people. And furthermore, I see them as representing the grand timeline of our salvation, past, present, and into the future, as children of our Heavenly Father. His call. In the previous passage, Paul reminded 
the Christians at Ephesus, that God chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world. Did you catch that? Before the foundation of the world. All of us, I think, can explain uh, why, we, why we are here today. Maybe your mother explained the gospel to you as a small child one night at bedtime prayers. Maybe you were wandering far from your faith in your teens, but, but a dedicated youth ministry person walked alongside you, encouraged you, and eventually brought you back to a place of strong faith. Maybe you didn't come from a Christian family, but your parents sent you to summer camp, basically just to, to get you out of the house. But while you were there, your cabin leaders and the other staff told you about Jesus and who he was and what the gospel meant in your life. And you found that this was taking root and growing in your heart. All of these things are true, right? We can say that the chain of cause and effect that led me to accept Christ, that led me to make a decision to be here at this specific time. But they aren't the full picture. The reason why you are a child of God and the reason you are ultimately sitting here today is because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And as I said last week, we can philosophize about that. We can argue about the how exactly or the what. Or we can marvel at that, that God called us to be his children. Right? Maybe nobody ever wanted to p- you to be on their sports team and they wouldn't pick you to play on their team at recess. Maybe no one ever asked you out on a date. Maybe you feel like no one would ever choose you for anything that matters in this world. But the God of the universe chose you in Christ to be his child. If that doesn't put things in perspective, I I really don't know what will. And as Paul spells out in another great adoption passage of the New Testament in Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Knowing the hope of his call looks back, back into time before there was time, when God already purposed to make us his children. It looks back in time on our own lives and when that call became active and real for us. Those of us who grew up in the Christian faith, we can sometimes even make light of this. I I grew up in a Christian home. I accepted Jesus as a small child. I I don't have a dramatic conversion story. But think of all that had to happen in order to make that possible. The events that had to happen, the chain of events, for some of us stretching back even generations, if we come from a long family background in the Christian faith. Paul says it's important that you know that and important that you think about that. Of course, Paul specifically connects the calling of God with hope. And hope is typically forward-looking. Biblical hope, however, is something much different than how we usually understand the term in everyday speech. We might say things like, well, I hope the weather will be nice in a couple weeks when we go on a little vacation, have our week away, so we can do some hiking. I hope we'll get a, a bit more rain this fall because of what a dry summer we had. I have no idea if those things are going to turn out. I can't control those things in the slightest. That's not biblical hope. Protestant funeral services all tend, in in one way or another, to draw from the Book of Common Prayer. And what, What are the last words there? You've probably heard these, right? In one form or maybe not in 16th century English. 
For as much as it has pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to receive unto himself the soul of our dear brother or sister here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything that seems hopeless and uncertain, it's, it's the death and the loss of a loved one. And yet for centuries, we've been saying some variation of these words in the face of death. Sure and certain hope of the resurrection. It's because biblical hope is not just a wish that things will maybe turn out. Pastors say these words at a graveside of a faithful brother or sister departed not out of wishful thinking and not as a platitude, but because it's true. Paul in Romans 5, and hope does not put us to shame because, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why is this so? Next verse. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, biblical hope is not based on the wish that things will turn out. Biblical hope is based on the reality of something that has already happened. And that brings us to the next point, his inheritance. We talked a bit about this last week. It's mainly future-looking. We're adopted as God's children now, and our inheritance is guaranteed, but we are not in possession of it. There's a sense that if you spend too much time thinking about what you're going to inherit from your family, that, that's a bit crass. Um, you know what I mean. I stand to inherit some money from my grandmother when she passes away. But it's not like I'm sitting around here just kind of going, okay, what am I going to do with that money? That starts to make it feel a little bit like you just hope grandma kicks the bucket and you can take that cash and put a down payment on some real estate. That's, that's kind of a crass and, and vulgar thing to do, humanly speaking. But Paul says that spiritually speaking, it is a good thing to think about what you're going to inherit In fact, he says, we have far too small of a view of our inheritance. He longs that we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. He longs that we might understand that we need, just like the young woman in the video, to multiply the value of what we think we have by about a thousand times if we're going to be anywhere in the ballpark. We think, oh yeah, that's nice. It's an inheritance. Not even anywhere close. Again, flipping back to Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, in effect, guys, I've done the math. Count up all the suffering you can find in the present time. Put it in a pile. Count it all up. All of it. Not even worth comparing with what is ours in Christ in eternity. That is bold. That's so bold, it's crazy. There's a lot of suffering in the present time, is there not? Hurricanes and death and wars and famines and suffering. It's enough to boggle the mind. And yet Paul says, not even worth comparing. Some of you might remember back in the the 1970s when pocket calculators first came out. Anybody remember that? I'm getting a smile from Mr. Armstrong here in the front. All that 
all that math teaching back in the, right? They, they were amazing. I, my science teacher, I remember in high school, he would, he was, I remember him telling us one time how great he thought his first pocket calculator was. Like, it could add and subtract and divide and multiply. It could do decimals. His even could do square roots, and that was really fancy. It was amazing. What was going to get better than this when it came to pocket technology? There was no way back in the 1970s that people could have conceived of something like the iPhone. Crammed into a package the same size as that little pocket calculator is more computing power than the entire Apollo space program had. But back in the 1970s, no one could have imagined that such a thing would one day exist. Right? It could take pictures. It records videos. You can talk to people on the other side of the world. You can access like all the combined knowledge of mankind with this little device in your pocket. Not even worth comparing to the little pocket calc. You can buy one of those at the dollar store now. They're even solar powered. But no one 40 years ago would have imagined something like the iPhone. That's how it is with what's ours in Christ. We're sitting here with our little pocket calculator going, I can't imagine anything bigger than this. And the Lord is going, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's why Paul prays, we'll at least catch a glimpse of how, we're never going to imagine it all, but maybe we could at least catch a glimpse of what will someday be ours in Christ. That's why he has to pray for it, because we're not going to get there on our own power. But as we faithfully follow our Lord, he will be pleased to reveal it to us, at least in part. His power. Here's a thought. Let's imagine that I walk however far it is over to Karen, to the railroad tracks. Okay, this, this might get a little gruesome, but let's just imagine that there is a freight train of like 100 cars barreling down that track at full, like 80 kilometers an hour. If I stand on the railroad tracks and brace myself, what is going to happen? I am dead, and... I'm sure that one of our esteemed physics teachers could explain the train would slow down like a fraction of some speed, but it would basically be imperceptible. Okay, so it's just going to run me over. Okay, what if we find somebody, somebody bigger and stronger? Levi, can you stand up? Okay, that's just Levi here. Excuse me, he's, he's quite a bit bigger than I am. I, I would suspect it'd be fair to say Levi might be two times as strong as I am. If Levi stands on the train tracks and tries to stop the, the Canadian Pacific mainline train, what is going to happen? Absolutely the same result. It does not matter if you are two times stronger, three times stronger. The strongest human could not stop that train. The result would be basically imperceptible from the train's point of view. But what if somebody went down to the train tracks and as the train was coming, they planted their feet and did one of these big windmill things and just at the moment the train hit them, they delivered a mighty blow and the train went hurtling back off down the tracks in the opposite direction. That would be some power. Would it not? Now, why did I provide you with this rather gruesome illustration? Well, because Paul is speaking about some pretty impressive power. Ever since humanity fell into sin, the whole system is like a runaway freight train bound for sin and death and destruction. Not just humanity, but the whole world, the whole cosmos, as the Bible puts it. 
The whole system of everything is like a runaway freight train heading in this direction. Sin and death and the power of evil. And then into this collision course steps Jesus. Like the man standing on the train tracks as that whole thing is coming. And initially, it looks like the train has just run him over like it would run everyone else over. Crucified, dead, buried. But just at the moment that it looked like a catastrophe happened, that runaway freight train screeched to a halt and went hurtling back off down the tracks in the opposite direction as Jesus walked out of the tomb on the first Easter Sunday morning. This is what Paul's talking about here. You want to know what power looks like? A man stopping a freight train is nothing compared to the power that God demonstrated in Christ by raising him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. He exalted him to his right hand. He declared him to be the Son of God in power. He was given the name that is above every name. Sin, defeated. Death, conquered. The powers of darkness, they got nothing on him. That's power. But before we get too carried away, let's move toward the end of our time together with a brief look back. Paul prays that we would understand his glorious inheritance in or perhaps among the saints and that we'd understand his great power toward us who believe. Here's the thing, friends. If the immeasurable greatness of God's power is worked out in the midst of us who believe, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is worked out in the midst of us who believe, it means that what we're doing here today is way bigger and way more significant than we dare to imagine. It's not entertainment. It's not a pastime. It's not a service provider. This is the people of God. Look around. This is the people of God gathering in the presence and power of God. Do we see what we're doing? Perhaps some of you have heard this, this quote from Annie Dillard. On the whole, she says, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs to be sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of powers they, we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. If we really understood the power that is available to us and the stakes that are before us, we would evaluate our local churches much differently, I think. Some of you may know, uh, one of my recent areas of interest outside of church things has been World War I. Oh, there's the kid with the chemistry set. Oh, no. There we go. Oh, come on, clicker. World War I. One of my bucket list items is to see the Vimy Ridge Memorial in France. I have two cousins who were killed at Vimy Ridge, and they're buried in one of the cemeteries nearby. Here's an interesting fact about the memorial, though. This is what the grounds around the memorial look like. It's this big, beautiful park, but you can't actually walk around in much of it. That's because most of it is just an overgrown battlefield, and just below the surface are tons and tons 
of unexploded munitions. The battlefields of the First World War were just quagmires, mud and swamp, and heavy explosive and gas and shrapnel shells would land, but the ground was so wet and muddy that they wouldn't detonate. They'd just go plop, and there they would sit, and there they are sitting still. No one mows that grass. They just let sheep graze on it. Because lawnmowers might be heavy enough to... You could, you could blow yourself up if you go out there. Just, just below the surface is enough power to blow you to bits. Tremendous explosive power, even after a hundred years, is laying just below that pretty green surface. Do we have any idea of the power that is there, just below the surface of our lives and our worship gatherings? And how is it that we can claim any of this power? Last week, we looked at the truth that we are adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. This week, I'd like to finish by reminding ourselves that we are part of the body of Christ, that is, the church. Here's how this runs. God's power in Christ is so strong that it reversed the freight train that was sin and death and exalted Jesus to God's right hand in glory. God's power in Christ was so strong that it took sinful, broken people like you and like me and united us to Jesus in such a way that we are called his body. Now, at some level, of course, this is a metaphor, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Again, this is where we need to work really hard to get out of our overly individualistic modes of thinking and worship. Personal commitment is important. A personal decision for Jesus is important. Personal holiness is important. But these things are worked out in a community. Not a pretend community that just exists online. Not a vague community that consists of, yeah, all Christians everywhere. But actual community of people that you can greet and see and touch and eat with. In many of his letters, Paul encourages believers to greet one another with a holy kiss. That might be a step too far for us. In fact, maybe holding hands to pray, as Dan encouraged us to do, was a step too far for some of our comfort zones. But that's a yardstick of how real your community is. Right? Is it actually something tangible, physical, that you can see and touch and shake hands with, that can bring you a meal when you're sick, that can look after your dog. I don't know what... All these things are examples of how we can judge whether our community is a real one or just a pretend one. I'm sure we've all had that experience of getting a small shock of static electricity from one person to another. It's pretty common in the winter. It's so dry around here and people shuffle their feet a little when they walk and walk up to shake hands with you and you get that little jolt on the end of your fingertips. But if only we could see the power coursing from one person to the next as we engage with one another and share life as the body of Christ. When you take time to actually listen when someone asks, or when you ask someone else, how are you? How's it going? That's powerful. When you take a moment to pray for someone about a concern they've raised, rather than just say, ah, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you, stop and pray right there. That's powerful. If you could only see the power that is transferring from one person to the next as the Holy Spirit is working among us. 
When you take time out of your day to do a kind thing for someone, that's powerful. When you apologize to someone when you've been wrong, that's powerful. There are a thousand other things that don't have to be huge that are just like this, that when when we interact with one another, the Holy Spirit is moving amongst us in incredible power. If only we had eyes to see it. And that's what Paul prays for that we would have eyes to see that, that we would understand something, even in part, of the power that is available to us, that is present among us and working among us as we live out what it means to be the body. So let's be the body. Let's be the family. And let's dare to pray with Paul that we might know a bit more of God's power in our midst. Because there's probably about a thousand times more of it than we would ever dare to imagine. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for this word today that reminds us what we need to fix our eyes on, what we need to fix our hearts on, and even what we need to to fix our imaginations on. We, we We are far too small in our thinking about what you have given to us, Lord. And left to our own imaginations and our own wisdom, Our thoughts are small and weak. But with your spirit, as Paul prays here today, enlightening our hearts and giving us the wisdom that comes from you, may we catch a glimpse of your call and what that means for us. May we catch a glimpse of the inheritance that you delight to bestow on us, your children. And may we catch a glimpse of your power. And all of these things, especially as they are worked out in the context of your body, the church. May we see the things that we do, not just as nice little things, but as occasions when your power is moving among us. May we see the simple gestures that we do this day and this week as being empowered by you in occasions where you are working mightily in our midst. Open the eyes of our heart As Paul prayed, may we also pray together. For your glory and for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.